This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Jacobina Arch, Assistant Professor of History in the Department of History at Whitman College. Dr. Arch is the author of Bringing Whales Ashore, Oceans and the Environment of Early Modern Japan, published by the University of Washington Press in 2018. Dr. Arch, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for inviting me. In your recent book, you're talking about the history of whaling in the early modern period in Japan. Before we get into talking about that more specifically, I was just curious, how is it that you got introduced to the topic of whaling? Could you tell us a little bit about that background? Yeah, I actually started off in graduate school in biology, studying whale behavior, and realized that that wasn't exactly my I was still interested, but it wasn't really what I was great at. And so um, I eventually, after stopping with a master's degree in biology, um, thought about what I wanted to do. And history has always been an, an interest of mine. And I really like foreign languages. And so I had a bunch of friends in college who took Japanese and I was busy doing science, so I couldn't take it. And I decided, oh, well, why don't I take some Japanese? And I did a summer language program in Hakodate and got really interested in the history while I was there because it was you know, very 19th century and very different than what I was expecting from Japan. So I thought I was going to do history of science originally, uh, thinking about history of biology and the importation of biologists into Meiji to kind of start up the university system and get them to transition over into modern science and, and that kind of thing. And the first semester that I was doing my master's in Japanese history, my advisor suggested, oh, hey, you've worked with whales before. <laughs> you might be interested in this picture I found of an anatomical diagram of a whale. And you could do a quick seminar paper on that, and then you can go back to figuring out your thesis. And it turned out that I was shocked at how little was actually out there, especially in English, talking about the history of whaling before the modern period. And it just kind of snowballed from there. So... <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, and, and then maybe the next project will be that one about the importation of biologists into Meiji Japan, because that sounds like a fascinating topic in its own right. Right. I haven't I, abandoned I, that one. I, I might get back to that. <laughs> but. So as you were looking more into whaling and this project kind of snowballed uh, and snowballed to the point where you ended up writing an entire book about it. So what 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 is happening with whaling in Japan in the early modern period? Well, one of the things that makes it particularly interesting for me is that there are some references to some kind of use of whales or opportunistic whaling or something as far back as, say, the Jomon period. You know, we've got little drawings of people maybe shooting arrows at whales or dolphins, but not in any way that seems like it was a real organized, steady way of making a living or sustaining a community. And really the first point at which you find active organized whaling in Japan is essentially the Tokugawa period. There's a, the first group is uh, recorded anyway, is in 1570. So it's a little bit earlier, but for the most part, they really took off in the early 1600s. And so it's, it overlaps really nicely this particular form of whaling with the Tokugawa period, and I think makes for an interesting window into the history of Japan with more ocean added into it, which I feel like is surprisingly lacking, especially for the Tokugawa, but kind of more generally as well. So 
these whaling groups, these organized whalers, they're specialized. They do this as a job in the wintertime. They go and they have a village will get together and they have a, a whaling manager who sends people out in boats, but there's people on shore who signal, oh, the whale's over there, go this way, you know, coordinate the movement of these little open rowboats. And they all circle around and, and chase the whale. And initially, they would just harpoon it. And if you stick enough harpoons into a whale, eventually it slows down from blood loss and feeling badly <laughs> and they can catch up to it. And the harpooner would leap onto the back of the whale and stab it with a lance. And, and that would be the uh, final blow. And they'd haul the whale back to shore, haul it up on the beach and process it there. So they have a whole bunch of people from the surrounding area who would come in to do sort of part-time work dealing with these whales. And so it wasn't just getting some fishermen involved. It actually involved a lot of the whole coastal community, which I thought was really interesting. And then the more I looked into it, these whaling groups actually moved down the coast. And so they're connecting together different domains. They initially started harpooning whales in Issei and Mikawa Bays. That's the 1570 group. And that group had vanished. Uh, there was a historian in 1808 writing, saying, you know, where did whaling come from in Japan? And he, he couldn't find anybody in Issei area to interview about whaling because nobody did it there anymore. So even before the end of the Tokugawa period, it had shifted dramatically. But some of those people had moved out to the Kumano coast, had moved down to Shikoku, had moved down to Kyushu. And they are actually the same people. It's not just, you know, I heard about it and I copied them, but actually some people went there and set up a group and then came back home after the season was over, things like that. So you see a lot more movement than I was expecting, certainly, from initially reading about, oh, well, the domains were really strict about travel and, and these kinds of things. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about this form of Japanese whaling is that in 1675, they invented a new form of whaling, not just harpooning. They would actually hang a net between boats on the, out in the open water and drive the whales into the net and then harpoon them and everything else was the same. Uh, and that's something you don't really see anywhere else in the world. So that was particularly like, oh, all right, there's something different going on here that I wanted to learn some more about as well. You mentioned the kind of the geographic distribution of this and mentioned places like Issei. I understand there's also in Seto Naikai, there's also some whaling that happens. Yeah, actually, um, the first whaling groups were in Issei Bay and then pretty much from there westward was where the coastal whaling was happening. So when I was doing my research uh, and I spent my, my year in Japan for my dissertation, I was based out of Osaka. What is it about that area in particular? Is that just where the currents bring the whales closest to the shore? Yeah, there's the Kuroshio comes right up along the coast there and it splits off. Well, it moves, but it usually splits off somewhere around the Tokyo area. There's an undersea mountain ridge that it changes where the current goes. And so north of that, you don't really have whales migrating along that current because the current isn't along the shore. So the other thing is that the Tsushima current, which breaks off the Kuroshio south of Kyushu and goes up and around between Korea and Japan, both of those currents are ones that whales would migrate along back and forth to their feeding grounds and then breeding grounds. So that area of Western Japan, it's very easy to 
see whales passing by from the coast and think, hey, we could go out there within a few miles, we're still visible to the people who are signaling on the mountains and things like that, and haul the whale back. You know, you have to you have to take your rowboat and tow this very large animal back to shore in order to process it. So you don't want to be too far out. And it seems to have been mostly just that half of Japan that was close enough to the whales to really make this kind of organized whaling viable. As you get into the 20th century, when things shifted over into modern mechanized whaling and corporate whaling, they did actually set up some groups in ports further north. And actually, as early as 1860s, they had American-style whaling they were trying to do out of Hakodate. So it does, Hakodate comes back in there, but uh, <laughs> that was really after the Tokugawa period. And speaking of this kind of difference between modern whaling and, and pre-modern whaling, one of the debates that you really engage in this book, in your book, is this question of was early modern whaling more sustainable? And, and this kind of fits into this this big debate in env- environmental history about the sustainability of pre-modern systems. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, and this is something that, as you mentioned, is a is a bigger question in environmental history. People are interested in thinking about what is sustainable. Modern systems don't seem to be, but you know, where can we find these versions, adaptations that might actually work better? One of the things about the Tokugawa period that people, I think, latched onto in thinking, oh, we might have found something sustainable here, is that they had a population increase at the start of the period really dramatically, and then it leveled off. And it didn't collapse. And so they think, oh, well, they must be doing something right there. Their population equilibrium for humans and maybe also some kind of sustainable equilibrium with their natural resources and these kinds of things. And even one of the authors, the sociologist who is studying modern Japanese whaling, which there's an argument about uh, if we allowed Japan to open up commercial whaling again, that they would do it sustainably. It would be a you know a better source of food than some forms of factory farming, these kinds of things. And he's saying that, well, the Tokugawa version was sustainable, but modern stuff tends not to be. And I was looking at that, and then I was looking at what I'm seeing with all these groups moving and collapsing within five years and begging the domain for a loan because they haven't caught any whales this year and they can't continue. And thinking about, well, if it really was sustainable, why are they having so many problems? And also thinking about, well, one of the reasons why we think that this area, you know, why is Tokugawa in particular sustainable is because of the kind of myth of the closed country, right? So people think, well, that's when they weren't connected very much, if at all, to the outside world. And so they were living off of only their own resources and their population didn't collapse. And so this looks like a great model. When in fact, when you start looking at things like whaling, and that's that's only one example, obviously other fisheries, there were many specialized fisheries that developed during this period. They're relying on an open system. The fish and the whales and the seaweed a little bit, although it doesn't move as much, <laughs> um, are all connected into a much larger moving system that comes in and out of the space around Japan. And so you can't say that's a closed system. You you wouldn't have whaling if you had a closed system unless the entire close to the Pacific basin. So I think it really helps us to think about why do we make assumptions about natural resources and limits and what's possible when you start looking at these whaling groups.
mentioned before that what makes the history of whaling so informative is that it reminds us that we need to look at Japanese history from the perspective of the sea. So how is it that Japanese history looks different when we take this perspective, looking towards the islands from the perspective of the sea? Yeah, uh, one of the things that I think is useful to remember, especially it's an island nation, you know, people talk about Japan as an island nation, but then they stop there and they don't talk about it what does it mean to be islands that just it kind of is a shorthand for small or resource limited in the modern era, right? And if you start looking at the ocean as part of Japan, at least the coastal waters as feeding into what is Japan, I think that you can expand out to think about interconnectedness beyond just political contacts. And it's something that I've been thinking about as a way of trying to figure out how the Pacific is part of or is not part of what Japan is at different periods. Because even in the Tokugawa, when they tried to really limit foreign diplomatic contact and trade, they are connected into Pacific circulations of things like whales, which migrate thousands of miles. And so I think it doesn't necessarily completely overturn what we think about the history of Japan. But it really enriches it, and I think it makes it much more connected to other places, and sometimes places we don't always think to look. So, you know, yes, there's a connection to Korea. We know that. It's close by. We would think about that. But what about the connection to things from the other side, the Pacific side? Those come in at different rates and different times, and obviously the the biggest one that everybody knows is Perry showing up with his black ships, but he didn't come from nowhere. And he came for whaling, right? (laughs) And he came in part because of whaling, right? He One of his at least excuses, and I don't know how much this priority mattered, but it was part of his list of, of demands, was that whalers needed to be able to resupply water and get fresh vegetables and things like that. And they needed to not worry that they're going to get thrown in prison or killed because they stopped by Japan on their way to catch whales. So it was part of this network of people who were intersecting with these particular animals, and they didn't necessarily know that other people were dealing with them. They didn't know why this was acting differently, but it helps explain, I think, the trends of where things are happening to think about larger systems like that. With whales in particular, it's a very large system, uh, but even you know, even smaller ones, uh, the, the smaller fish, you know, the kuroshio brings a lot of larval fish and other kinds of organism circulation close to Japan that they would not otherwise have. So what does that mean for what these islands are like? You know, it's not just a particular latitude and longitude that matters. It's also all these intersections that I think the ocean helps us see a little better. In addition to looking at whales in terms of the connectivity across the ocean from places like Japan to North America, you also talk about whales as being vectors for a different kind of mobility within Japan itself. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, well, once I was starting to think about the mobility of whales, I also started to think about, well, are they causing people to move more? Like, people are chasing them. How much is that kind of influencing the movement of people? And one of the things, I don't think it's, it's not like a particular whaling group followed one whale all the way down the coastline. It's not that kind of, of movement influence. It's, I think, a more indirect kind of influence where, as I mentioned before, these whaling groups are sending people, you know, there are people who are from 
the Kumano Coast, which is now Wakayama Prefecture, and they're going all the way down to Kyushu for the winter, for the whaling season, and then they're coming back. So there's this kind of migratory fishing work that they're doing that is not about following a specific whale, but is looking for a place where you've hit a good migration route area. Maybe because the area that they are from has fewer of them than they used to have, but also maybe just because there's competition that you know, maybe we'll be the new group down in Kyushu that nobody else knows about yet. Um, That kind of thing seems to have happened as well. And so that kind of really lively transfer of people and equipment and things like that up and down the coast for whaling itself was one thing. But then when you start looking at that, it's also, well, what about the circulation of all these different products that they're making from the whales? What kind of movements do you get with customers and ideas? And you see actually a really interesting integration of the marine space into inland Japan, into Japan as a whole, that I think we need to pay more attention to. There's a lot of discussion of, you know, peasant farmers, what are they doing out in the countryside or cities, but a lot of them are relying on marine products, right? This population that leveled off and held steady is getting fed by these products, maybe not directly. I mean, they are eating fish in some cases, but they're also using them for fertilizer for those fields. They're also feeding their imaginations with these interesting, strange creatures that are out there that they're exploring. What, what is that anyway? You know, it's a big question when you run into a whale. <laughs> Often it's like, what is that thing? <laughs> what do we do with it? And so there's a lot of, you know, there's stories that circulate. There's more scientifically minded discussions of, of what are these animals? What can we do with them? And there's also just people who want to go down to the whaling villages and find out what's happening there. And would maybe visit the coast on a pilgrimage otherwise, but, you know, now they they add in, well, and let's go find out what they're doing. I heard that they make a lot of money over there, and I heard this story that Ihara Saikaku wrote about this rich whaleman, and now I want to see, where are those rich whalers? (laughs) So there's a lot of movement visible when you start tracing these different pieces. You mentioned before, but there's this kind of lacuna in in the historiography uh, talking about whaling. And it's almost kind of ironic, right, when you think about how much people in Japan eat sushi. And that's the one thing that people think about uh-huh. Japan, right? And, and Japan, as we know, has has the largest consumption of tuna in the entire world. And, and so it seems almost paradoxical that lack of interest in Japan around whaling and around the ocean. W- what do you make of that? It is really puzzling. And There's a couple different things that I find interesting about it. One is, of course, that, as you mentioned, things like sushi, marine products, everybody knows that Japan subsists hugely on these kinds of foods from the ocean. And yet somehow that doesn't translate into a really strong historical interest in where they come from and how does that fit into society, which I think is a little bit based on the Chinese historiography that the historians within Japan in earlier eras inherited, you know, this focus on rice as the center of everything, that the farmer is the center and production, and, and then things work their way out from there. And so the framing of how they told historical stories in the past tends to forget about the fishing villages because they don't fit that framework. They don't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> and so they just don't appear. And then we have to work harder to figure out who those are and where they fit. And 
the other part of it that I think is interesting is that whaling is hugely political now. So why wouldn't we have a whole bunch of writing about this history of whaling in Japan? I mean, that was when I initially started the project, I thought I would go and find a whole bunch of articles and books that had already been written and put them together and then be done. And there is conversation about this in Japanese, but even then it doesn't seem like the general public is talking very much about Japan's reliance on the ocean, uh, whether it's whaling or sushi or other things like that. We briefly mentioned Commodore Perry coming in 1853, partly because of this concern about whalers and everything like this. And of course, since this being you know, the Meiji at 150 podcast, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Meiji period. So what happens to the practice of whaling and, and perhaps the place of whaling in Japanese industry and Japanese society after the Meiji Restoration? Yeah, so whaling and its changes... They- kind of overlap with Meiji, although not right with the Restoration. Uh, some of the changes are happening before then, like Perry shows up before then. And many of them, there's a bit of a delay. They do start trying to adopt American-style whaling right around the Restoration era, Bakumatsu into early. And that's not very successful, in part because American whaling had already passed its peak. In the 1850s, Americans spread out into the Pacific and found all of the mostly uh, right whale and sperm whale populations in the Pacific. And there was a huge crash in whale populations, this really intense whaling effort over the course of a decade. And those are the same whale populations that are migrating along the coast of Japan. And so that shifts the availability of whales. And so both Japanese and American whalers have to look in other places or other ways to, to capture whales. And American style whaling means pelagic whaling, offshore based on a boat, not bringing things back to the shore and processing the way that had been done in Japan. And so it was a pretty big shift to think about, you know, how would we do this? We don't really have the ship technology or experience on these ships or knowledge of exactly how this works, but they made some efforts in that direction. And it really wasn't until the late 19th and early 20th century that things really shifted over. And that's in part because they gave up on doing American style whaling and shifted to what in Japan is called Norwegian style whaling, which just means essentially modern factory ship, well, initially modern harpoon gun mounted on a engine-driven ship whaling, which by the 1920s included factory ships that they brought the whales back to to process. And that was a, the harpoon gun was invented by a Norwegian, so in Japan they call it Norwegian-style whaling. And that, that was part of the Meiji industrialization process, getting these first steamships and then other kinds of engine-driven ships and, and figuring out how to have a merchant marine again and, and the skills to operate these ships way out at sea. But it wasn't directly connected into the Meiji process so much as it was coincidentally happening along with all these other changes. And so it's it's really interesting to think about how much was related to these dramatic political changes and how much was just kind of a 19th century shift. And that was actually one of my earliest questions in thinking about the history of whaling in Japan. It's like, well, Meiji was a big change. So 
and I know that by 1900, most of these coastal whaling groups had vanished. Was that a policy? Was that something that was directly promoted to shift over to this other kind? And it seems to have been more haphazard and accidental, just people looking to maximize the ability to catch whales, were looking for other technologies that would find them in places where they were still plentiful as opposed to fished out. And so then this pelagic whaling using the big factory ships or the Norwegian method is what Japan is doing now. And and we, we've kind of circled around this topic. <laughs> but of course, the, the big controversial topic right now is Japanese whaling practices. Can you weigh into that? Give us some of the arguments in favor and against, and then give us a bit more of the historical context as well? Yeah. So the argument for The resumption of commercial whaling by Japan now, and it's a resumption because the IWC, the International Whaling Commission, put a moratorium on commercial whaling in 1986. So essentially banned any kind of commercially driven whaling, allowing a loophole for Aboriginal subsistence whaling, which was intended to be for, say, people in the Arctic who don't have other possibilities for things to eat. And you can't say don't hunt whales at all around the world if that's going to cause people to starve in these areas. And they left a loophole for scientific permit whaling, which is because at the time, the way that you got any information about whale biology was to have a scientist on board a whaling ship and using the fact that they had caught whales to be able to do some scientific work on you know, what's in their stomachs and figuring out their age, which you can't tell just by looking. You have to look at things inside the whale, things like that. And so they thought, well, we have to be able to sample some whales by killing them in order to figure out whether we can lift the moratorium. And since then, well, and of course, in the 1970s, we have the rise of Greenpeace and other environmental groups that think that driving whales to extinction is a terrible thing and new kind of conversation about what whales were. They weren't just sources of oil. They weren't just things you could make money off of. They were these huge, amazing creatures that had value in and of themselves. And so there's the arguments against whaling tend to be on the value of whales um, in a biodiversity perspective, or even saying how intelligent they are and and therefore how we shouldn't be killing them and, and things like that. And the arguments that Japan is using to say we should be able to open up commercial whaling initially tried to be based on the Aboriginal subsistence part of the exemption by saying, well, we used to subsist on whales too. It used to be part of our food ways and food culture. It is a tradition of ours, just like it's a tradition of theirs. So why can't we also have an exception for that tradition? And the rest of the IWC looked at that and said, well, but you're planning to sell it. So that doesn't make sense. And that didn't go through. They're, they're clearly not Aboriginal. You're making this argument in the 1980s when it's all concerns about Japan, the superpower, taking over economically everywhere. So they then said, okay, well, we'll use scientific permit whaling and we will sample whales under a permit that's issued by the Japanese government until we're allowed to open it up to commercial whaling. And to counter the kind of emotional arguments of the worth of whales, they came back with a potentially more emotionally seated argument about culture right, about tradition. So it's not about making money, because that's, you know, the the capitalist argument isn't particularly impressive to environmentalists. (laughs) But it's this long tradition, it's this long unbroken tradition, you know, various ways that that in some cases, pro-whaling people in Japan will say it goes back to the Jomon, as if 
it was completely unbroken and exactly the same 3,000 years ago, which clearly it wasn't. But many of them at least say, well, from the Tokugawa period, like this was a huge part of our culture, and therefore this is a tradition that has continued to this day. Even though there's a moratorium, we should be allowed to go back to it. And the difficulty with that argument is if you don't know the history, how can you compare it to this Norwegian-style modern whaling? How can you say anything? How can you make up your mind on, you know, is that a good argument or not? And so one of the things that I was looking at is, well, if people have, if most of the information is out there in Japanese, if it's even findable at all, most of the people who are concerned about the whaling issue don't read Japanese, they have nothing to work with. And so that was one of the things I was hoping in doing my research to make available to a much wider audience is just basic information about what is this history? How did it change? How similar is it? You know, is it really, is the culture of the Tokugawa period really all that connected to modern Japan? In this case, I'd say not really, <laughs> but pieces of it still exist, right? And so there's different ways that this makes the argument much more complex and more useful to know about what's happening. Why are they saying this? Um, where does this come from? If you can check, well, what was that history? Okay, now let me see, what are they doing now? How does that relate? The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.